Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. We recorded today's interview during the first week in June, a time which saw the issues of police brutality, institutional racism, and flat-out bigotry towards Black people in America boil over as countless Americans broke quarantine to protest the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others at the hands of the police in this country every year. I discussed with my producers if I should even talk about what is happening in the world right now. I don't know, it just felt so incongruent and lip service to be like, Black Lives Matter, now here's Judd Apatow talking about Pete Davidson. It's hard to talk about, but that is one of the great, useful things comedy can truly do. It has the ability to discuss hard topics. It fosters conversation. This week's guest is Eric Andre, host of Adult Swim's The Eric Andre Show and star and co-writer of the upcoming Netflix narrative prank movie Bad Trip. Eric's also a stand-up comedian, and his first hour special, Legalize Everything, comes out on Netflix on June 23rd. These past few weeks, Eric has joined in the widespread protests and has called for the Los Angeles police chief to be fired. We booked Eric a while ago, but after recent events, Eric said he wanted to talk about a joke from his new Netflix special about Cops, the TV show that for over 30 years has served essentially as propaganda for police departments across the world. Eric focuses on the theme song Bad Boys, which calls everyone the cops interact with bad, as if all cops are the good guys. As we talked about in the interview, Eric wrote this joke over a decade ago. The fact that it's still relevant today says everything. The wild thing is, days after our conversation, the Paramount Network canceled cops. So, here is Eric Andre. Do you remember the show, Cops? Did you guys ever watch the show, Cops? Is it just me, or is reggae the most inappropriate music they could have picked? to open up the show, cops. You can't slap reggae over police brutality footage and call it a day. You can't, that's not an intro for a show. The intro to cops is like, you're under arrest, you unarmed innocent black teenager. Boom! 
Town. Jamaican on gum downtown. Rastafari. Welcome to the island of peace and purity. Just my boots, you disenfranchised transgender prostitute. Bam! Jamaica is a tropical island paradise. Our national currency is the delicious coconut. This is a system invented by rich, white, Christian, heterosexual businessmen. And if you don't match that description, then it is my job to subjugate and oppress you, motherfucker! For I am your judge, jury, and executioner! So I'm here with the comedian behind the joke you just heard, Eric Andre. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Um, I, you know, I want to start with uh, how are you doing? I mean, if you're comfortable, can you tell me what your last couple weeks have been like? Uh, I'm good. I've been drinking too much and uh, the world's falling apart in a race apocalypse and we're in a global pandemic. And uh, yeah, we're doomed. But other than that, I'm fantastic. Um, I saw that you were at a number of protests. What did you see? Uh, a lot of full frontal nudity. I'm going to be honest with you. Really? No. Um, I, uh, I saw what everybody, what you're seeing on social media, you know, I'm seeing. I've been fortunate. All the ones I've been to have been pretty peaceful and civil. So mm. I think the news is focusing on the wrong part of it they're focusing on like vandalized starbucks and it's just like oh man it's not about that guys pay attention i actually saw a lot of a very diverse group of youth um actually for the first time being very proactive like mm -hmm. they protested outside of mayor garcetti's house and asked him to um defund the police and now he is defunding the police so i actually feel like there's a lot of he didn't defund them but he he allocated some of their money which is like out of control they're taking the majority of the city's budget into other departments i guess yeah. so i think it's they said it was the biggest civil rights march as far as numbers turnouts worldwide in like modern history of civil rights marches. Yeah. So it's been going really good. It's been really productive. And I think that like we're taking our generations, taking the power into their own hands and putting stuff on social media because the media is just portraying like violence and looting. And they're not portraying how, how the police brutality is continuing and how peaceful the protesters are and how proactive and organized the protesters are. And I'm like really proud of my, generation for the first time in like forever <laughs> so uh yeah it's been going really good it's been really i think we're getting the world's attention now in a positive way yeah um so to get into the special and the joke you know i want to start with just talking about cops the tv show what was your before even writing the show what was your relationship to your, the show what did you think about it had you watched it 
Yeah, I grew up watching that show, so it was just always on and always fascinating. And uh, they definitely downplayed the police brutality. That's the farce of cops. But the, the underlying subtext to cops is it's like that Bill Hicks joke. State power will always win or will bust down your door and get you anytime we want. I also read some article about how like cops in less violent towns when they're filmed on the show cops, they kind of ratchet it up and like people have been killed and hurt because the cops were kind of showing off for the camera. Excuse me. Rude. <laughs> Did you listen to that podcast running from cops? No. For those who haven't, it was a podcast essentially about how they shoot cops and how the cops cops use that show as essentially propaganda and like how they film how they film cops right now yeah, how, how they, they shoot cops with guns yes yes how they film it and how they frame cops as the good guys and how the theme song essentially is like these are the bad people like that dichotomy right. and how that's at the core of it um yeah it's interesting if only because you have part of the what the podcast talks about is how they convince people or essentially don't actually get clearances from people or they say they do or they get people all the influences and it's interesting in so much as you have experiences yourself with getting clearances from people from the pranks yeah release form well i heard that they do a dirty trick where they go to the person who's arrested in the back of the car they say hey can we release you and the person's thinking like oh i'm gonna be released from these handcuffs so they're like yeah and it, it's like secret code for like a verbal release consent for the filming so it's like I heard the producers have a dirty trick. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is that is pretty dirty. The podcast makes it seem like they do that. And the cops make it seem like if you sign a release, you're more likely not to get time. In trouble, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I was like, how are they getting release forms for these people? Like, I wouldn't want that footage out there. So it is unethical. <laughs> producing cops um how and when did the idea for this joke come to you uh i was the joke is so old i was on a treadmill at the gym at the ymca in brooklyn when i was like 23 years old jogging and watching cops on the tv yeah <laughs> so what was the line of reasoning that led to i want to talk about this on stage I was only doing stand-up in those days. It was pre-Eric Andre show, so all my writing was just writing for stand-up. So that was my only medium. Mm -hmm. That was my only outlet because it was like I could do it for free and I didn't need access to resources. Yeah. So you saw the show and just the spark came to you? Sort of how did the sort of idea of watching it then lead to whatever this... What did you see that you're like, oh, this is exactly what I want to be talking about? It's sort of that first stage of writing the joke. I was doing open mics and chicken shit shows all through New York and uh, I was just getting up every night and the jokes that worked stayed and the jokes that didn't work didn't stay and that joke not only works but it's evergreen so I was able to drag it across the years. I've heard you talk about consuming a lot of comedy albums and specials to see how different people did their versions of material. There's an episode of the Stones Throw podcast in particular where you sort of play tracks of some of your favorite albums uh, you play J. Anthony Brown, Eddie Griffin, George Carlin. So I'm sure you're aware that many different comedians have talked about police brutality before in comedy history in different ways. In, in what way did this feel like your way into this subject? Or even looking back on it, why does it sort of fit into your voice? I think it's specifically about the show Cops. And I get to do like a goofy reggae act out. So 
It's like high brow, low brow. That's yeah. the formula. You know. <laughs> was the joke ever longer? Or was it always ultimately like about this size? That joke specifically, it was always kind of. I think it's actually at its longest now, which is the opposite of most jokes. Most jokes get like they're like long and rambly and kind of half baked, and then they mm-hmm. start getting tighter and tighter and tighter, and you edit it down. But that joke just grew from like when I was like twenty three. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, for a joke like this to work, as you mentioned, there's sort of a highbrow, lowbrow element. You have to sort of walk a line where you sort of have to be accurate and as harsh as possible with what the cops are saying, but not completely suck the air out of the room by being sort of too harsh, but also sort of clearly trying to balance it out. Right. You know, can you talk about coming up with the sort of three police lines? I I did 85 shows in 47 cities last year before I taped the special. So I, I tested the shit out of every square inch, every line of every joke I made sure where you can hear the collective butthole clenching in the audience when they're uncomfortable with a joke or a premise, you know, or it's like too harsh mm-hmm. and then you can feel them start to relax. But the, the audience is constantly letting you know line by line what's working and what's not working. It's like instant feedback. For this, are you, is there like an exact amount of, like you want a little butthole clenching, but not too much? Cause you still want, there needs to be some tension with, the first part, because you are you want them to hear it. Yeah, I think it's got to be like the right kind of tension. I guess the right kind of butthole clenching, <laughs> as they say. Yeah, as they say. Um, like a lot of comedians, you'll um, in interviews will describe things that you're doing as dumb as a way of saying, "Oh, it's silly." It's like, "Oh, that's just dumb." And I, and obviously, the sort of reggae song functions that sort of way of being a sort of silly relief in the joke. But, you know, what does dubness do? How does it sort of function in your ability to help communicate what you want in this joke or in general? Like, what is the value of it? What, what do you mean by dumbness? Like highbrow, lowbrow, like I was talking about? Yeah, yeah. Or the silliness or I mean. The silliness. Yeah, I think that like it takes the edge off while Trojan horsing your message that would be typically hard to swallow into people's brains. And Comedy is like a way of coping with tragedy. I'm ordering sushi, if you don't mind, while I, while I talk to you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not overthinking it. I wouldn't overthink it. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a coworker today, partly about interviewing you and just talking about it in general, but the pressure when you are a Black creator to sort of be a good representation in however you talk about subjects. And I feel like we're also talking about that there's a certain sort of seriousness that sometimes feels like it's put on even black comedians to talk about serious topics. Mm-hmm. Considering your career and as a person sort of who has studied comedy, do you think what it means in the context of history of comedy to sort of tackle issues both incredibly seriously, but also playfully? Do you think about... Yeah, I think that's the best way to serve the dish. I think that like it's the only way you can communicate your message and get it to the people who need it is to yeah. put it into a joke. Uh, I want to talk to you about the performance of the joke, but I want to talk about sort of performance generally. A lot of your jokes in the special are built around act outs. Right. Why is it? What do you like about sort of a performance driven style? What do you like? It's not even what I like. It's like, that's what the audience likes. Like anytime I try to be like a raconteur and like ramble on that, it just turns into a Ted talk. They want to, they, they, 
they want to see me shucking and jiving. <laughs> so got to give the, the internet what it wants. Um, so with the joke, how did the performance of this evolve over the course of the last tour specifically? I think that it wasn't so specific in the cop act outs. It wasn't so like, you're under arrest, you unarmed, innocent black teenager. It used to just be like something more generic. And it was like, you're under arrest, you old crackhead. It was like 22-year-old me writing versus 36-year-old yeah. me writing. And like I just like updated it a little bit. So it was like, now it's, you're under arrest, you unarmed, innocent black teenager. Kiss my boots, disenfranchised, transgender prostitute. I think I, I put more thought into what the cop was saying to mm-hmm. the victim. I was talking to Sarah Squirm, who was your opener for the Legalize Everything tour. Um, yeah. And, and we're talking about, especially in this part of this joke in particular, there's sort of a violence to your performance. Like you are, you scream so hoarse at the end of you lie on the ground. She mentioned yeah. that, that happened to you every time. Where does that come from? That sort of like. I love, I love bad brains. I love like punk and metal and noise music and the boredoms and Mike Patton and dead Kennedys and, and all like the grindcore bands and metal bands, cryptopsy origin, Dillinger escape plan. I grew up listening to the loud music and avant-garde jazz, you know, John Zorn and Albert Eiler and like Coltrane's later albums. Like I like it like loud and like, like it feels like you're, brain is swelling while you're listening to it <laughs> i also love chris farley mm-hmm. that was one of my favorite comedians when i was a kid and i love wrestling i love wwf growing up so those guys are always like screaming and yelling like caveman there's something primal about it you mentioned the idea that you think sort of the best comedy is a way of coping with tragedy or processing it. Is that screaming cathartic for you? And especially talking about yeah, like this. That- yeah. I'm also very, I'm very nervous on stage. So it helps like get over my nerves. So as you mentioned, this joke is you've had for a while and there are other jokes throughout the special that I sort of noticed. It's like, Oh, I remember that joke from different parts from following your career. You know, the tour and the special is called legalize everything. You know, one sort of, how did you come out with that framing and sort of what, what does it mean for your jokes to be packaged with under that sort of header? Like, what does that mean to you as it relates to sort of material that you've had? I usually don't like to explain it because I think it's not the, the job of the artist to explain the art because then they sound pretentious. I think it's like it takes away from the listener's interpretation of yeah. the art. Like, I, I can explain it and I will, but it's going to flatten your experience and you're going to lose something with an explanation. Mm. That's why I like that Stanley Kubrick never did an interview. Cause he's like, if I start to explain it, it's like when you explain a joke, it just like, it, it, it like takes away from your experience. It becomes only your experience. Like it is a way of ha- understanding yeah. your one intention, but it does make it so it's not as personal. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I, I came up with it. I like the anarchic spirit of the legalize everything. I like that it's tongue in cheek. Clearly, I don't want to legalize murder. <laughs> and like, uh, I like, and most of my jokes felt like they were, I was kind of like looking at my jokes on index cards on the floor before I built the set. It, and they were just a bunch of disparate jokes. And I was like, what are the recurring themes? A mm-hmm. lot of it's about 
drug use or party party experiences, race, politics, sex, uh, you know, and just like funny stories from my life, autobiographical stuff. So I was like, what, what can I, how can I package all this stuff? Mm-hmm. What's like the, the through line? And I just thought legalize everything has a funny ring to it. Yeah. The special shot in New Orleans, and you, you start the special with a, a prank where you're playing a cop who's giving out drugs, um, and I believe you pull down your pants at some point. It's it's in the vein of a lot of sort of cop it's related. My old swan song. <laughs> yeah. It's in the vein Pulling of other pants. other cop related pranks you've done. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the one where you play a cop who somehow handcuffed around a lamppost with his pants down, and you're yeah. asking people for help. Or yeah. um, the one where you get arrested by James Adomian, but then you start making out. Yeah. Um, in in so much as what you're doing with the pranks and stand-up are sort of different ways of communicating similar things, but ultimately the pranks are sort of a different point of view. Um, you describe the Eric Andre you play on the show as sort of your id or an impression of yourself to the nth degree. Who is the Eric Andre in your stand-up? I think somewhere between me right now waiting for sushi and the Eric Andre show persona, which is like full <laughs> psychotic. <laughs> so there's uh, somewhere in the a height, a heightened version of myself, but not all the way heightened to the adult swim show. Is there is is that part of the reason why you decided to go back to stand up is you wanted to show people who I yeah, well, I've been doing it longer than anything. I've been doing it longer than the Eric Andre show. I've been doing it for 17 years. So I just wanted like a, a record. I wanted to like put all my jokes on wax and have a body of work to show off my stand-up. Mm-hmm. And Netflix is great. And there's no bigger platform. There's no bigger yeah. stage than Netflix. So it was the perfect, perfect opportunity. We'll be right back with more Eric Andre. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. Hey, you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you... I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Eric Andre. So I was thinking, preparing for this, about Sasha Brown Cohen's episode of WTF. Um, and there's this one moment that always stuck out with me of that interview where 
he's talking about sort of the rush he feels of doing a large prank and sort of his need to sort of chase it. And like as a high is like, once you do that, that's sort of the comedy you sort of want to keep on doing. You want to see what, keep on pushing it and raising the stakes as a person who did that, but then also is now coming back to stand up. How do you sort of capture the same sort of rush or urgency with your stand up, either for your audience or for yourself? Stand up is nerve wracking all the time too. That audience, even if they're there to see you, like if you don't bring the heat after a few minutes, they're like, fuck you. <laughs> so you always have to deliver Yeah. every time. You can't phone it in to stand up. Watching your special, which is there's an energy level of your special that is it's hard to describe, but it, I imagine it's hard to maintain that over shows and have audiences keep with you. Are there things you oh, do? Oh, yeah, it's, exa- it's exhausting. I used to do three sets in a night, and I told my agent, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, by the third set, I'm like, <gasps> I sound like I'm on my deathbed, and I feel like it, too, and I was getting sick all the time. I'm like, one set a night, that's all I can do. Even, even that's exhausting. Do you... You know, there's some stuff that maybe capture on the show, but are there different types of things that you bring into the show to make sure the energy stayed up throughout, even for yourself or for the audience? Just ge- just general good health, like exercising, drinking a lot of water, meditating, eating healthy. It's like not the most sexy, fun answer. Yeah. I wish I was like cocaine, Robin Williams <laughs> or Richard Pryor. And I could tell you I was freebasing before the sets, but it's like... I'm like eating salads, man. I'm really <laughs> lame. I'm really like a boring suburban dad. And wow. uh, I would just like, I would do like vocal warm ups and shit. And I'm studying with a vocal coach. What did you learn? I've never heard that. What is, what have you learned from a vocal coach? You got to warm up your voice. You got to like put your voice on a straw and water and blow bubbles and go like, and like cool down your vocal cords and not talk after a show. It's a lot of work. It's a yeah. tremendous amount of work. Um, I think a, a lot of artists seek to create a space where they could communicate themselves. And, and you've talked about pursuing comedy and the arts um, in some interviews because you felt out of place where you grew up in Florida. I also think you described not wanting to pursue music because it the sort of industry was broken and sort of no matter how good you get, people just want Justin Bieber. So, I mean, in so much as that you pursued comedy where you have been able to build this specific fan base, you know, as you're playing these tour in really large venues, I mean, you played like Beacon Theater in New York. What does it feel like to have created this space for you? Oh my God, it's amazing. I mean, like I was so broke and, and, desperate and insecure and miserable throughout the majority of my 20s that I'm like so grateful and thankful that I have a job and I have a house and like you give a shit enough to interview me and like anybody's paying attention to me and Netflix has given me a stand-up special I'm like so so grateful it could have gone could have gone really south if I stayed in my rap metal band from high school so um I am I am well aware that I am lucky for the for the little bit of whatever success I got. When you there's um the story you've told about there's the summer you were essentially homeless. You you gave up your apartment, you slept on friends' couches, but sometimes you slept wherever you, you could and you described it as sort of giving yourself 
to the sort of gods of comedy or sort of the craft or comedy to sort of prove your commitment. Now, so many years later, is is this sort of what you're hoping for? Was this what you're dreaming for? I mean, like either creatively or in terms of audience? This is like more than I expected. I mean, the the average musician, even like at their height, I think Billy Corgan says like the average band has like four great years and that's it. That 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 makes it. Mm-hmm. So I get to express like Adult Swim gives me carte blanche. You know, they let me do whatever I want. Netflix let me say whatever I want. So I, I have like the most creative freedom. And and there's way less comedians on earth than there are musicians. So I feel like um I could stand out more. Yeah. You know, in a way that I couldn't with my music, my crappy music. To to zoom up further, you mentioned it being on Netflix with its millions and millions of subscribers you know the, yeah. the the special has a sort of anarchist message an anti-establishment message a, a sort of punk rock message what does it mean to put that on netflix it's exciting i think that like hopefully it'll reach an even broader audience and uh i i almost try not to think about it i get a little yeah. superstitious about that kind of stuff a joke you do in the special is one and i think i've seen you, you do it a bunch it's just sort of like a good intro joke you often do which is you're bluish you're black and jewish and and i bring that up because the history of comedy in this country is arguably created by sort of a dual track of black people and jewish people yeah a a history that i'm sure you're aware of considering that you know how do you think of yourself as part of that history how do you identify as what do you hope to contribute to sort of that lineage i don't know i don't think about it in such like a heavy or like I'm just like a pioneer or like <laughs> I I don't know I I think uh, I just try to do be good at my job and like I I hope to like look back on my life and have like a good body of work yeah I don't know I'm not like I'm I'm groundbreaking I'm a visionary. And I'm taking my people to the promised land. I'm shepherding them like Moses. I'm the Moses of comedy. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't really think I, you think you, you've thought about it in more depth than I have. I don't know. I'll feel better once, I'll feel better once it's out. I've been waiting so long to put out the special and the movie and season five. I just want this stuff out. Then I'll maybe, maybe I'll have a, more perspective mm. on it and what's, what's You're still like, in received it. by the public. I've been doing it in like a vacuum in a weird way. So I don't have know. you, have you started working on season five? Yeah, I'm almost done. We're like coming to the final weeks of editing. What can you say, if anything, what do you hope it captures? I mean, in so much as a continuation. I think it's our, I think it's our best season. I gained, I gained weight for it and I got rid of all my body hair except my eyebrows for it. And I, spray tanned every day and I bleached my teeth and um, Hannibal quits in the middle of the season and we clone him and we replace him with his clone. Uh, A lot of drama and action, high stakes, but it's also, we got the pranks down to a science. Now after Mm -hmm. the movie, we know exactly how to produce pranks and yield like such a high result that like every single episode is banging. It is by far the best season, I think. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to be able to produce pranks as a science? Because it's to, to the outside viewer, it seems like complete anarchy. I can't tell you. I can't tell you everything. 
I, I can, I can, I, I now know how to get people, how to coerce people into random pedestrians into a location that they normally wouldn't just hang out in, um, without blowing the prank or letting them have any idea what's about to transpire. This, you talked about the season being the best one. Is it, Partly because you were away from the show from longer than you were. I mean, it was, this was we just know what to do, and what not to do, and we learn from our mistakes. You learn from your mistakes over and over again, so we know who to hire, who not to hire. We know what bits when we're writing them will yield good results, and we know what yeah. writing is unproducible. Before, like season one, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. There was like fourteen different onion skin papers around my house that was like the script. Mm-hmm. And like I was uh, updating it in a vacuum and not telling my crew like what the updates were. It was like all over the place. And now I'm just like a lot more organized and know what I'm doing. You, you, just, you, learn, you just learn through mistakes. Yeah. You mentioned that in previous interviews before, you mentioned you imagined this would be the final season, but that was before you started working on it. Now- yeah. And then I'm like, I love the show so much. What show will I have more? creativity plus i'm looking at always sunny in philadelphia going into their 17th season i look at curb your enthusiasm going into its 10th 11th season and i'm like why would i get rid of this show why would i walk away from this adult swim once more so it's just like there's no show where i'm gonna have more creative freedom than this show and i can as long as i can pick it up and put it down whenever i want which is is the case like to me i'm like keep keep the door open because I, you've made it so whatever you want the show to be is what the show is. Yeah. Like, if you yeah. wanted to have a different tone for a season, it could be whatever tone it is. They, yeah, they are, like, the most supportive, nurturing, hands-off company ever. They're just like, yeah, whatever you want to do. Like, they are just, like, invested in me and have been since, since the beginning. So I'm, like, again, super grateful to be in business with them. And then it has not been announced when the bad trip is coming out. But no, we, we talk- should hear something. We should hear something soon. Yeah, we were going to announce it until we had a date, but Bloomberg Media like found out somehow. I don't know how. They're like spying around our emails or something. For people that sort of know you from your standup or and and the show. What does this sort of represent in sort of the arc of your career of like what you've been able to achieve with it? The movie is the first time we did pranks that had to be narrative. So we strung together 40 to 60 pranks, I'd say, into a cohesive narrative story, which is no small feat, but we accomplished it and it came out amazing. Plus, Rel is amazing in it and and Tiffany Haddish is amazing in it and Michaela Conlon. The the cast, it's a small cast because you can't put a bunch of actors in it. You got to like, keep the cast very minimal so you know exactly who's being pranked and who's not. Um, there's only four yeah. cast members and they're, they, they're incredible. And Jeff Tremaine was our mentor the whole time. He, he directed all the Jackass movies and bad grandpa and he f- co-founded Jackass and he, he has, you know, 15 to 20 years more experience than we do. So, um, he was like our Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. and, uh, the final product is, is amazing. I'm really, really excited to release that. As a, as a follower of the prank form, do you feel like there's anything in it that really, be it not necessarily dangerous, but you've put pushed the form forward in any way? 
Well, there was, there was danger. I mean, we got a knife pulled out on us the second day of shooting, for sure. A lot of danger. Very dangerous. But uh, I think this is the first, like, ethnic cast. This is the first, like, all people of color cast that um, has done a prank thing. I think that it's, like, this is the only prank movie where it's, like, it doesn't seem cynical or like punching down or being mean to the people we're pranking. We're like, we show like that humanity in Americans throughout yeah. the movie, which is exciting. So I think we broke new ground, hopefully. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our, our final segment, which is our the laughing ground. It's like a lightning God, round. God, that sound was incredible. <laughs> My ears are bleeding from that magnificent sound. It was like God's lips were pressed against my ears. Exactly. It's a, it's a wonderful sound. You um, know what I mean? Jesse yeah. Fox. I hear that sound every time and I'm like, what a, what a sound. It's Pavlovian. I'm like salivating for my sushi whenever I hear that sound. It's like Pavlov <laughs> ringing the bells for those dogs. <laughs> let's, hear it, let's hear it again. <laughs> oh yeah there it is oh my gosh fucking love that shit man that that sound is a son of a bitch <laughs> when it comes to sound mm-hmm. <laughs> mamma mia if I was in Italy right now I'd say scazzalabobala you know what I mean I know totally I mean, I know. It's you my sound. You know what I'm saying, my man. Come on, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> There's that sound again. Boom. 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 Again. Two times. 17 times. Since it's an audio podcast, I should let you know that he is putting his fingers in the air as if he's, I guess, yes, shooting guns. Yes, but that sound is put in afterwards, they're going to, they, no explanation needed. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke, street focus, joke? Focus, man. Can you focus on the interview at hand? <laughs> yeah, of course. The best one is, what do you call a dick that meets a turn at a 90 degree angle? Poopendicular. <laughs> I've never heard that one. That's really funny. Uh, my friend Evan wrote it. Um, is there a joke or prank you wish you could steal in so much as it's another dimension where everything's exactly the same except for you have, get to have done this prank or get to tell this joke? Oh my gosh, so many. So many. A joke, my favorite joke that I was like, why I wish I wrote that is uh, that Patton Oswalt joke where he goes, I don't get people that like George Bush and they're not billionaires. They're like, hell yeah, man, I think George Bush is fucking awesome. He's like, holy shit, dude, how much do you make a year? They're like, oh, I only make like $30,000 a year, man. And he's like, oh, well, fucking Bush hates you, dude. Are you kidding me? He wouldn't, he wouldn't be caught dead with you. <laughs> it's the perfect synopsis. Yeah. Is there a prank you wish you could have done? Oh, man, so many. That's a hard question to answer. I think, uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of like, I like the Bruno prank in Ollie G show where he's like, 
He's getting those frat boys all riled up. He's like, yeah, say hi, get on the body pyramid. Yeah, we're all partying. Yeah. And then at the end, he's like, they're all hyped and shirtless on the beach. Like, yeah, they're doing all this like homoerotic suggestive stuff. And then at the end, he's like, all right, give a shout out to gay Austrian television. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> what is this for? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, honestly, anything Jackass or anything Sasha Baron Cohen, like the majority of their stuff is like, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? Can you talk about... I'm, there's sometimes in interviews you won't talk about for legal reasons, but are there, considering that you do pranks without permit, I mean, you're sort of just out on the street. Can you talk about any interactions with the cops you've done while filming anything? I've been arrested a couple times, but now we kind of know what to do and what not to do. At first, we didn't know what the fuck we're doing. So we're getting in a lot of trouble. Uh what not to do? What? What is? How do you not get prank? How do you not get arrested when doing? Well, I was like pranking the mayor one time with no permission, no permits, and like there's nothing but cops in there. So they were like, "What are you doing?" And then they just arrested <laughs> me. They're like, "Why are you doing this?" I was like, "I don't know." Are you allowed to? You? What do? You, how do you get a clearance to a, a, essentially impersonate an officer? Is that as different? You can, you can, so I can impersonate an officer as long as I'm not arresting or detaining somebody or making somebody feel like their life is in danger. Interesting. So I can't go up to them and be like, there's an active shooter, run, run for your life. Because if they have a heart attack or trip and fall, then we're in big, big doo-doo. And I can't like detain them. I can't like, I can't rile them up in that way. I can rile them up in different ways. Is there a... A joke or uh, just anything that you've done, sort of comedically joke or prank or something that you've done that you're like, you thought this was really funny. You went through with it and then no one else has thought it's funny. There, No audience has received it and being like, we agree with this. You eventually sort of put it to bed and retired it. But you're like, I still think that's funny. You'll go to your grave being like, this is funny. Everyone else is wrong. No, a ton of a ton of stuff. Not everybody else is wrong. I think like the customer is always right, but uh, yeah, a ton of so you're constantly throwing spaghetti at the wall that like is cracking up you and your friends. But yeah, um, yeah, that's like the process. So many, I I, I, don't, I wouldn't know where to begin. Can you think of a recent one? Maybe uh, I we had this weird prank. It's so heady and hard to explain. Where I'm like. Season four, where like these guys were playing basketball, and I was dressed in a business suit. And my baby was up in the air with balloons, and I was like stealing the basketball from them and begging them to get my baby out of the sky, and then having these like internal moments of like uh, crisis and existential corporate crisis. It's it's mm-hmm. like listen to me. It's already <laughs> it's like if it takes yeah. that long to set up, you know you have an issue. So. You know, but I thought it was funny, but nobody else did. Do you have one thing you would want to either be the first thing listed in a obit or what you'd want them play in an memoriam? Like, this is the thing that captures my essence of what I've done, at least of what you've done so far. Of like, play this and my funeral and I will. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I- the most popular are like Ranch It Up and Bird Up. Well, that stuff's the most popular. My sushi's here. I'm very excited. One second. Let me grab my sushi real quick. Sure. 
Hey, sorry, man. No, it's okay. Had to get some soup. I, I think is a, a nice way to wrap it up to end the, the threat. Can you tell people what your sushi order is? Uh, oh, I got a lot of stuff. I got some uni. I got some chicken skin, chicken meatball, like yakitori. Um, I got a blue hand, a blue, blue crab roll. I think I got a salad too. I think it's salad. Yeah, it's salad. Uh, that's it, man. All right. Well, enjoy. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Good luck. Bye-bye. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Legalize Everything on Netflix on June 23rd. Follow Eric at Eric Andre on Twitter or at Eric fucking Andre on Instagram. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Yvonne Orgy. Have a good one. <laughs>